Act Two of The Bow Stratagem by George Farker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Act Two, Scene One A Gallery in Lady Bountiful's House. Enter Mrs. Sullen and Dorinda. Meeting. Morrow, my dear sister, are you for church this morning? Anywhere to pray, for heaven alone can help me. But I think, Dorinda, there's no form of prayer in the liturgy against bad husbands. But there's a form of law in Doctors' Common, and I swear, Sister Sullen, rather than see you this continually discontented, I would advise you apply to that, for besides the part that I bear your vexatious broils, as being sister to the husband and friend to the wife, your example gives me such an impression of matrimony, that I shall be apt to condemn my person to a long vacation all its life. But supposing, madam, that you brought it to case of separation, what can you urge against your husband? My brother is first the most constant man alive. The most constant husband, I grant ye. He never sleeps from you. No, he always sleeps with me. He allows you a maintenance suitable to your quality. A maintenance? Do you take me, madam, for an hospital child, that I must sit down and bless my benefactors for meat, drink, and clothes? As I take it, madam, I brought your brother ten thousand pounds, out of which I might expect some pretty things, called pleasures. You share in all the pleasures that the country affords. Country pleasures? Racks and torments! Dost think, child, that my limbs were made for leaping of ditches and clambering over stiles? Or that my parents, wisely foreseeing my future happiness in country pleasures, had early instructed me in rural accomplishments of drinking fat ale, playing at whisk, and smoking tobacco with my husband? Or of spreading of plasters, brewing of diet drinks, and stilling rosemary water with the good old gentlewoman my mother-in-law? I am sorry, madam, that it is not more in our power to divert you. I could wish, indeed, that our entertainments were a little more polite, or your taste a little less refined. But pray, madam, how came the poets and philosophers, that laboured so much in hunting after pleasure, to place it at last in a country life? Because they wanted money, child, to find out the pleasures of the town. Did you ever see a poet or philosopher worth ten thousand pounds? If you can show me such a man, I'll lay you fifty pounds you'll find him somewhere within the weekly bills. Not that I disapprove rural pleasures, as the poets have painted them. In their landscape, every Phyllis has her Corridon, every murmuring stream and every flowery mead gives fresh alarms to love. Besides, you'll find that their couples were never married. But yonder I see my Corridon, and a sweet swain it is, heaven knows. Come, Dorinda, don't be angry. He's my husband and your brother. And between both, is he not a sad brute? I have nothing to say to your part of him. You're the best judge. Oh, sister, sister, if ever you marry, beware of a sullen, silent sot, one that's always musing, but never thinks. There's some diversion in a talking blockhead, and since a woman must wear chains, I would have the pleasure of hearing him rattle a little. Now you shall see, 
but take this by the way. He came home this morning at his usual hour of four, wakened me out of a sweet dream of something else, by tumbling over the tea-table, which he broke all to pieces, after his man and he had rolled about the room like sick passengers in a storm, he comes flounce into bed, dead as a salmon into a fishmonger's basket, his feet cold as ice, his breath hot as a furnace, and his hands and his face as greasy as his flannel nightcap. Oh, matrimony! He tosses up the clothes with a barbarous swing over his shoulders, disorders the whole economy of my bed, leaves me half naked, and my whole night's comfort is the tunable serenade of that wakeful nightingale, his nose. Oh, the pleasure of counting the melancholy clock by a snoring husband! But now, sister, you shall see how handsomely, being a well-bred man, he will beg my pardon. Enter Squire Sullen. My head aches consumedly. Will you be pleased, my dear, to drink tea with us this morning? It may do your head good. No. Coffee, brother. Phew. Will you please to dress and go to church with me? The air may help you. Scrub. Enter Scrub. Sir? What day of the week is this? Sunday, and please your worship. Sunday? Bring me a dram. And, do you hear? Set out the venison pasty, and a tankard of strong beer upon the hall table. I'll go to breakfast. Going. Stay, stay, brother. You shan't get off so. You were very not last night, and must make your wife reparation. Come, come, brother. Won't you ask pardon? For what? For being drunk last night. I can afford it, can't I? But I can't, sir. Then you may let it alone. But I must tell you, sir, that this is not to be borne. I'm glad on. What is the reason, sir, that you use me thus inhumanly? Scrub. Sir? Get things ready to shave my head. Exit. Oh, have a care of coming near his temples, Scrub, for fear you may meet something there that may turn the edge of your razor. Exit, Scrub inveterate stupidity did you ever know so hard so obstinate a spleen as his oh sister sister i shall never have good of the beast till i get him to town london dear london is the place for managing and breaking a husband and has not a husband the same opportunities there for humbling a wife no no child tis a standing maxim in conjugal discipline that when a man would enslave his wife he hurries her into the country and when a lady would be arbitrary with her husband, she wheedles her booby up to town. A man dare not play the tyrant in London, because there are so many examples to encourage the subject to rebel. Oh, Dorinda! Dorinda, a fine woman may do anything in London. To my conscience, she may raise an army of forty thousand men. I fancy, sister, you have a mind to be trying your power that way here in Lichfield. You have drawn the French count to your colours already. The French are a people that can't live without their gallantries. And some English that I know, sister, are not averse to such amusements. Well, sister, since the truth must out, it may do as well now as hereafter. I think one way to rouse my lethargic, sottish husband is to give him a rival. Security begets negligence in all people, 
and men must be alarmed to make them alert in their duty. Women are like pictures, of no value in the hands of a fool, till he hears men of sense bid high for the purchase. This might do, sister, if my brother's understanding were to be convinced into a passion for you. But I fancy there's a natural aversion on his side. And I fancy, sister, that you don't come much behind him, if you doubt fairly. I own it we are united contradictions, fire and water. But I could be contented, with a great many other wives, to humour the censorious mob, and give the world an appearance of living well with my husband, could I bring him but to dissemble a little kindness to keep me in countenance. But how do you know, sister, but that instead of rousing your husband by this artifice to a counterfeit kindness, he should awake in a real fury? Let him. If I can't entice him to the one, I would provoke him to the other. But how must I behave myself between ye? You must assist me. What, against my own brother? Oh, he's but half a brother, and I'm your entire friend. If I go a step beyond the bounds of honour, leave me. Till then I expect you should go along with me in everything. While I trust my honour in your hands, you may trust your brother's in mine. The Count is to dine here to-day. Tis a strange thing, sister, that I can't like that man. You like nothing. Your time is not come. Love and death have their fatalities, and strike home one time or other. You'll pay for all one day, I warrant ye. But come, my lady's tea is ready, and is almost church time. Exeunt. Act two, scene two. A room in Boniface's inn. Enter Aimwell, dressed, and archer. And was she the daughter of the house? The landlord is so blind as to think so, but I dare swear she has better blood in her veins. Why dost think so? Because the baggage has a pert je ne sais quoi. She reads plays, keeps a monkey, and is troubled with vapours. By which discoveries I guess that you know more of Cher. Not yet, Faith. The lady gives herself airs, forsooth nothing under a gentleman. Let me take her in hand. Say one more word of that, and I'll declare myself. Spoil your sport there and everywhere else. Look ye, Aimwell, every man in his own sphere. Right, and therefore you must pimp for your master. In the usual forms, good sir, after I have served myself. But to our business. You are so well dressed, Tom, and make so handsome a figure, that I fancy you may do execution in a country church. The exterior part strikes first, and you are in the right to make the impression favourable. There's something in that which may turn to advantage. The appearance of a stranger in a country church draws as many gazers as a blazing star. No sooner he comes into the cathedral, but a train of whispers runs buzzing around the congregation in a moment. Who is he? Whence comes he? Do you know him? Then I, sir, tips me the verger with half a crown. He pockets the simony, and inducts me into the best pew in the church. I pull out my snuff-box, turn myself round, bow to the bishop or the dean, if he be the commanding officer, single out a beauty, rivet both my eyes to hers, set my nose a-bleeding by the strength of imagination, and show the whole church my concern by my endeavouring to hide it. After the sermon, the whole town gives me to her for a lover, and by persuading the lady that I am a-dying for her, the tables are turned, and she, in good earnest, falls in love with me. There's nothing in this, Tom, without a precedent. But instead of riveting your eyes to a beauty, 
try to fix him upon a fortune. That's our business at present. Pshaw! No woman can be a beauty without a fortune. Let me alone, for I am a marksman. Tom! Aye. When were you at church before, pray? Um, I was there at the coronation. And how can you expect a blessing by going to church now? Blessing? Nay, Frank, I ask but for a wife. Exit. Truly, the man is not very unreasonable in his demands. Exit at the opposite door. Enter Boniface and Cherry. Well, daughter, as the saying is, have you brought Martin to confess? Pray, father, don't put me upon getting anything out of a man. I'm but young, you know, father, and I don't understand wheedling. Young? <laughs> Why, you jade, as the saying is. Can any woman wheedle that is not young? Your mother was useless at five and twenty. Not wheedle. <laughs> Would you make your mother a whore, and me a cuckold, as the saying is? I tell you, his silence confesses it, and his master spends his money so freely, and is so much a gentleman every manner of way, that he must be a highwayman. Enter Gibbet in a cloak. Landlord, landlord, is the coast clear? Oh, Mr. Gibbet, what's the news? No matter, ask no questions. All fair and honourable. Here, my dear Cherry, gives her a bag, two hundred sterling pounds, as good as any that ever hanged or saved a rogue, lay them by with the rest, and here three wedding or mourning rings. Tis much the same, you know, here. Two silver-hilted swords. I took those from the fellows that never show any part of their swords but the hilts. Here is a diamond necklace, which the lady hid in the privatest place in the couch, but I found it. This gold watch I took from a pawnbroker's wife. It was left in her hands by a person of quality. There is the arms upon the case. But who had you the money from? Ha! Huh. Poor woman. I pitied her. From a poor lady, just eloped from her husband. She had made up her cargo, and was born for Ireland, as hard as she could drive. She told me of her husband's barbarous usage, and so I left her half a crown. But I had almost forgot. My dear Cherry, I have a present for you. What is it? A pot of cerus, my child, that I took out of a lady's under-pocket. What, Mr. Gibbet, do you think that I paint? Why, you jade, you betters do. I am sure the lady that I took it from had a coronet upon her handkerchief. Here, take my cloak, and go. Secure the premises. I will secure him. Exit. But, hearty, where's Hounslow and Bagshot? They'll be here tonight. Do you know uh, any other gentleman on the pad of this road? No. I fancy that I have two that lodge in the house just now. The devil! How do you smoke them? Why, the one is gone to church. That's suspicious. 
i must confess and the other is now in his master's chamber he pretends to be servant to the other we'll call him out and pump him a little with all my heart mr martin mr martin enter archer combing a periwig and singing the roads are consumed deep i am as dirty as old brentford at christmas a good pretty fellow that whose servant are you friend my master's really really that's much the fellow has been at the bar by his evasions but pray sir what is your master's name tall all doll sings and combs the periwig this is the most obstinate curl i ask you his name name sir tall all doll i never asked him his name in my life tall all doll what think you now aside to gibbet gibbet aside to boniface plain plain he talks now as if he were before a judge to archer but pray friend which way does your master travel a horseback gibbet aside very well again an old offender right to archer but i mean does he go upwards or downwards downwards i fear sir tall all i am afraid my fate will be a contrary way <laughs> mr martin you're very arch this gentleman is only travelling towards chester and would be glad of your company that's all come captain you'll stay to-night i suppose i'll show you a chamber come captain farewell friend captain your servant exeunt boniface and gibbet captain a pretty fellow his death i wonder that the officers of the army don't conspire to beat all scoundrels in red of their own re-enter cherry cherry aside gone and martin here i hope he did not listen i would have the merit of the discovery all my own because i would oblige him to love me aloud mr martin who was that man with my father some recruiting sergeant or whipped-out trooper i suppose all safe i find aside come my dear have you conned over the catechism i taught you last night come question me what is love love is i know not what it comes i know not how and goes i know not when very well an apt scholar chucks her under the chin where does love enter into the eyes and where go out i won't tell ye what are the objects of that passion youth beauty and clean linen the reason the first two are fashionable in nature and the third at court that's my dear what are the signs and tokens of that passion a stealing look a stammering tongue words improbable designs impossible and actions impracticable that's my good child kiss me what must a lover do to obtain his mistress he must adore the person that disdains him he must bribe the chambermaid that betrays him and court the footman that laughs at him he must he must nay child i must whip you if you don't mind your lesson he must treat his oh ay 
he must treat his enemies with respect his friends with indifference and all the world with contempt he must suffer much and fear more he must desire much and hope little in short he must embrace his ruin and throw himself away had ever man so hopeful a pupil as mine come my dear why is love called a riddle because being blind he leads those that see and though a child he governs a man mighty well and why is love pictured blind because the painters out of the weakness or privilege of their art chose to hide those eyes that they could not draw that's my dear little scholar kiss me again and why should love that's a child govern a man because that a child is the end of love and so ends love's catechism and now my dear we'll go in and make my master's bed hold hold mr martin you have taken a great deal of pains to instruct me and what do you think i have learned by it what that your discourse and your habits are contradictions it would be nonsense in me to believe you a footman any longer oons what a witch it is depend upon this sir nothing in this garb shall ever tempt me for though i was born to servitude i hate it own your condition swear you love me and then and then we shall go make my master's bed yes you must know then that i am born a gentleman my education was liberal but i went to london a younger brother fell into the hands of sharpers who stripped me of my money my friends disown me and now my necessity brings me to what you see then take my hand promise to marry me before you sleep and i'll make you master of two thousand pounds how two thousand pounds that i have this minute in my own custody so throw off your livery this instant and i'll go find a parson what said you a parson what do you scruple scruple no no but two thousand pounds you say and better archer aside it's death what shall i do aloud but harky child what need you make me master of yourself and money when you may have the same pleasure out of me and still keep your fortune in your hands then you won't marry me i would marry you but oh sweet sir i'm your humble servant you're fairly caught would you persuade me that any gentleman who could bear the scandal of wearing a livery would refuse two thousand pounds let the condition be what it would no no sir but i hope you'll pardon the freedom i have taken since it was only to inform myself of the respect that i ought to pay you going archer aside fairly bit by jupiter aloud hold hold and have you actually two thousand pounds sir i have my secrets as well as you when you please to be more open i shall be more free and be assured that i have discoveries that will match yours be what they will in the meantime be satisfied that no discovery i make shall ever hurt you but beware of my father exit so we're like to have as many adventures in our inn as don quixote had in his let me see two thousand pounds if the wench would promise to die when the money was spent, egad, one would marry her. But the fortune may go off in a year or two, and the wife may live. Lord knows how long. Then an innkeeper's daughter. Ay, that's the devil. There my pride brings me off. For whatsoe'er the sages charge on pride, the angels fall, and twenty faults beside. On earth, I'm sure, among us of mortal calling, pride saves man oft, and woman too from falling. Exit.
End of Act 2